Welcome back to Bible Love. We are on Thursday in the fourth week of Lent, and so the collect for today. Let us pray. Almighty and most merciful God, drive from us all weakness of body, mind, and spirit, that being restored to wholeness, we may with free hearts become what you intend us to be and accomplish what you want us to do. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so we've been talking about this forever, and so we finally got him. I am so glad that my friend, Dr. Mark Audrey Graves, is here with us. Okay, I was very nervous about your title because I'm scared I'm going to say it wrong, but Master of the Choristers and Scola at St. Paul's Winston-Salem in North Carolina. So, Mark, thank you for being here. Mark's one of my very treasured friends, but also, Mark, Tell us what the heck your title means. (laughs) Sure. Well, first, let me say I am delighted to be with you all here um, for this podcast and and doing one of my favorite things in the whole world, which is talking about the Bible and um, even more so the specific uh, portion of the Bible that we'll be talking about today. But my job title. So I... um, I have a, a second title, uh, which is director of music for children and youth. And that kind of helps zero in on, on this, this other title. So the choristers uh, is the name of our choir of children and youth at St. Paul's that ranges from third. We have a training choir that we call the novice choir. That's first and second graders with, with some kindergartners as well. And then the choristers go from third grade through high school. And this group of, of just amazing, wonderful kids, they sing every week at our nine o'clock Sunday morning Eucharist service, as well as other times during the year, we do a pattern of choral even songs and we do an Advent lessons and carol service and sing of some of the Holy Week services like Monday, Thursday and the Easter vigil uh, so the chor- chorister, really the word chorister means someone who's a member of, the cho- of a choir. But for a long time in our church tradition, that word has been used. And some of this, I think, has to do with the history of church choirs in the Anglican tradition, where children sing the top line in a choir. And so chorister has become, for, for our purposes, a designation for a young singer. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the second part, the scola, scola is a Latin word that literally means school. And uh, the longer version of that in, in church is the scola cantorum, which is Latin for the singing school or the school for singers or however you want to nuance the, the Latin there. And that very general sounding word um, is also something that we'll see pop up from time to time in in churches and cathedrals and other places that are involved in sacred choral singing because that is the name of the earliest known 
church choir that we know of in the history of Christianity. That was the name given to a group of people in the city of Rome at least by the 4th century, if not earlier. Uh, the job of the Scola Cantorum in Rome was to sing the, the liturgies um, at the various basilicas around the city. And it was an official group of, of clergy of various orders, and I think some lay people may have also been involved in that. I have to double-check that. You can edit that out if it's not true. Um, but anyway, so it's an homage to the fact that that singing and the art of cultivating singing as a spiritual discipline really is part of our Christian heritage going back almost all the way. And I think it's it's worth saying, as we'll get into today's topic, that, you know, what were they singing in that Scola Cantorum? And, and so, well, let me finish the question, answer the question. Um, so the, for our purposes at St. Paul's, we use that term to designate we have a group of adult singers who sing with the children. Um, you know, so we have a full four-part plus choir with singing in harmony where the adults take the lower voices and the kids sing the soprano and a couple of the kids sing alto. Um, so our, our Scola Cantorum is a group of both volunteers and paid section leaders who sing with our choristers. Well, I, I was laughing about it because I felt, you know, I was so worried I was going to say it wrong, but also like, I think it's such a beautiful way to like lead into what we're talking about today. Um, Mark is very accomplished in every way. We will link, um, his bio, um, on this, on this episode, but, you know, you're an organist, you're a musician, you have a master's of divinity, you know, all these wonderful things, PhD, all these wonderful things. But when I asked him if he would give me, um, his favorite psalm, he said, I can't do that. So now my, 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 my question is, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Well, I think. Six days out of the week, at least, I would have to say the book of Psalms is my favorite book of the Bible. And um, I have to credit my my dear, dear professor from Divinity School, Dr. Ellen Davis, um, for fostering that love of the Psalms and also giving just some wonderful wisdom around the Psalms. Uh, and she has a wonderful quote that she would be the first to say did not originate with her, but comes from the rabbinical tradition that the book of Psalms is so wonderful because it contains everything. Mm. The, the entirety of human existence and the entirety of humans relationship with God is found in the book of Psalms. And that's just one of the things that makes it so such a, such a fascinating book. And it's, it's unlike any other book in the Bible. From that sense, it, people will often say, and I've, you know, Dr. Davis among them, that if other books of the Bible represent God attempting to speak to us, then what the book of Psalms does is it represents humanity's attempts to speak to God going in the opposite direction. Yeah, I think that's so true. Like, I, we have talked about this at nauseum, but just every emotion, every feeling you could possibly have is all there. Right. One of the questions that was really important, I think to both Alan and I, that we wanted to ask you is because you're a musician, because you're um, working with 
all kinds of musicians, and especially in the liturgy, what for you is the importance of chanting or singing the Psalms as part of our spiritual experience as worshipers? Sure. Uh, that's a, there's a lot to unpack with even that question. Yeah, I right. think a, a good starting point might be to talk about how the Psalms from their Genesis uh, are intended to be sung. They, they, the, the book of Psalms is the, is the hymnal. So it is, it's the, it's the songbook and the hymnal of both the, the Jewish faith, you know, from, from the temple period all the way forward. Um, and was also the hymnal and songbook of the early church. Um, this is something that, that the early Christians brought over, um, from their own Jewish background and, and groundedness and tradition. It's one of the links, one of the, the strongest links I think we share with our siblings, uh, in Judaism is this shared body of, of songs, uh, that is the book of Psalms. And, um, I also think that it's very telling that the Hebrew name for this book of the Bible is Tehillim, which means praises. Literally, that's in, in Hebrew, it's called the book of praises. And when you consider that things like Psalm 22 and Psalm 137, by the waters of Babylon, um, Psalm 130, out of the depths, I cry to you, that those texts are grouped together in something called praises. I think can really open our eyes to, to ponder and meditate on what does it mean to praise God? It's not just our happy feelings when we say praises, but that everything that we encounter in life, all of our emotions, all of our hardships, all of our tragedies um, are meant to be presented to God. And the thing about singing specifically is that when when we sing we're tapping into something very deeply fundamental about what it is to be human uh there's something uh you know to quote uh the the great albus dumbledore um that music is is the is the deepest most mysterious magic that there is in the world and there's something that we simply cannot comprehend about what it is that music does for us and for those around us and for life basically um i love to 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 it's it's amazing to me when i read about um you know our earliest human ancestors that one of the oldest artifacts that we have from archaeology is a flute you know, made out of bone. Um, that's something that's supposed to be like 40,000 years old. So we're making music as paleolithic people. And there's, so there's something very fundamental about who we are that when we combine emotions and thoughts and words and concepts to a way of, of putting voice to those that are not simply speaking to each other the way that we are. But there's something about rhythm and melody and harmony that underscores those concepts and those, those prayers. It's a way of voicing prayer that takes kind of our deepest gut emotions and heightens them. And uh, you mentioned chant earlier, a, a minute ago. 
And the thing about chant, I love chant. I think I could talk about chant for an hour without even mentioning a psalm probably. But the thing about chant is that it's chant. I like to call chant the, the native musical language of Christianity. Um, it transcends culture. It transcends geographic origin. It's something that we share with Christians all over the world. Chant has also has its origins in uh, Judaism by way of North Africa, actually, according to what most scholars think. So chant is non-Western music, uh, which one is one of the things I love about it. Um, but the whole and, and it's something that we also share with other religious traditions around the world. Uh, chant is a feature of Islam. It's a feature of Eastern religious traditions. And basically what chant is all about is taking words and heightening them. It's like heightened speech that has both a practical aspect, which is in a large resonant room. If you're chanting something, it's easier for people in the back to hear it. Um, but it also serves to slow down the pace of the words and emphasize them in a ritual and prayerful way. So when we chant in our liturgy, we're basically saying, Hey, this is important prayer. This is something that's, that is worth slowing down and chewing on and offering to God in a way that says it's important. And all of our music, I think stems from that same place of, of origin and concept that the point of music in worship is not simply to have something pretty. Um, it has a much deeper purpose. Now, I will also say that there's nothing wrong with things being beautiful. Um, I, one of my, my favorite church uh, theologians is um, Percy Dearmer, the, the English priest and, and liturgist. And Percy Dearmer has this wonderful quotation where he says, beauty is a physical manifestation of God the Father. And that when we see beauty in the world, we are seeing a manifestation of who God is. And so I think music taps into that same thing as well. And so when we talk about the Psalms, when we really start to unpack the actual words that we use in our liturgies, in the prayer book, you know, people always talk about how when Thomas Cranmer put the first prayer book together, it's what? whatever the statistic is, 90-something percent scripture. And I think beyond that, a lot of that scripture is, is from the Psalms. And so it's, I'm always amazed when I, when I look at things and realize, oh, that part of our worship, that comes from the book of Psalms. When we, you know, for example, the daily office, morning prayer and evening prayer, Compline, noonday prayer, that's the Psalms. Um, O Lord, open thou our lips, and our mouth shall proclaim thy praise. That's Psalm 51. Um, O God, make haste to help us. O Lord, make speed to help us. That's uh, Psalm 70. You know, it's everywhere. You know, morning prayer, we pray the Venite or the Jubilate. Those are both Psalms. Um, so it's incredible when we really think about And in the Eucharist as well, there's Psalms are all through the Eucharist, even when we're not realizing that's what, that's where they are. So there's something about the Psalms that are, they're just in our DNA as the church, um, which, yeah. Yeah. A couple of things came to mind. Like, I'm so glad you said 
it's not just about the beauty because I, and the, and the prettiness of like, let's make the service pretty, you know, yeah. I think we can get kind of caught up in that. Um, Alan, do y'all have a specific one that you use at St. Martin's? We use the simplified Anglican chant more often than not, just because I feel like that's what people know. Do you have, do y'all have? Yeah, we use, I forget which one it is, but it's one of the simple tones and it's every week. And, and I think like teaching is what we're trying to do as well with like the pointing and um, how to move the flex in our voice and all of that. But also, I loved what you said is, yes, it's scripture, but it's also a prayer. And, a prayer. Yeah. And, and we don't, like, think about it in that way. You know, I don't even know if we've talked about that, Alan, really oh, that much um, when we've been talking about the Psalms, but that it is a prayer. We talked about the emotion. We talked about the ups and downs of it. But singing a prayer to God feels so right to me. It just yeah so right to me but it's not something I can do on my own because I'm not a singer but it does feel like something I'm comfortable doing in worship with other people that's the beauty of corporate worship is that we're a body together and we're offering these prayers together as a congregation Um, I think it's just it's it's a magical thing and it's one of those things where from the outside, someone who's not part of our tradition looking in, and I mean someone who's not a Christian um, uh, looking in, because I think I can't think of one Christian tradition that does not involve, that does not have singing as a part of what they do. Even the, you know, the, the primitive Baptists who do not have any musical instruments, they sing all the time. So singing is something that all Christians do. But someone who's not a Christian looking in at our worship might be pretty baffled. At, at this thing that seems to be pretty, I will never forget an episode of, of uh, Family Guy where they're all standing in church and they're all singing together. And the words they're singing are, this makes no sense. It's very strange when you stop and think about it. And, you know, there's something about that, that um, it's countercultural. We, I, I think it's unfortunate that, you know, as much as music and singing is a fundamental part of who we are as human beings, that at least in the United States, it's, it's something I feel like we're losing is the sense of, of communities of people singing together and maintaining our stories and uh, our sense of community through song. Um, and that's, that's something to be lamented, but that means that what we do in church becomes even more countercultural in that sense, which I, I'm of the opinion that uh, the church should be as countercultural as it can be. Um, so let's keep on singing as a congregation. Um, shoot, I had a, let me think. I had a point I was going to respond to with something you just said. And, oh, well, you know, there's the famous quote that people love to, to reference um, from St. Augustine that he never said. Um, it's, it's one of these things that it, it sounds good. Um, and Augustine could have said it, but it's that line that, you know, those who sing pray twice. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if he didn't say it, I think it still could be something that, that we can hold on to as having some truth to it. I and mean, he said other things about singing that are really beautiful about how singing connects the beloved and the lover or God and humanity. And he had a lot to say about that. But this notion that, that when we're singing, we're doubling down on our prayer. Um, 
I, I, the fact that that's an anonymous quotation, I think, makes it no less true. Yeah, and, you know, I just feel such a difference in my 830 and 1030 service in the spoken word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just on a spiritual level. Like, I don't know. I, I, yeah. I, I mean, and I love my 830 peeps. I'm not mm-hmm. super bad by any means, but I just, I don't know. I feel more full, you know. Yeah. We're singing together and we're being together and we're praying together. And we do the simplified Anglican chant a lot because I think that's what people feel comfortable in. But then we switch, we try to switch things up and Lent and Advent and all that kind of stuff. And I'm always so grateful that they're like willing to try things and be different and go against the grain a little bit. I don't know what y'all are doing at St. Paul's or at St. Martin's, but, um, we are doing a silent procession during Lent. Oh, wow. Yeah. Not stand it. I it's it's hard, isn't it? Stand it. I yeah. am so uncomfortable. Do y'all do, do either one of y'all do that? What we do is we still sing hymns um, in and out. The, the one place where we do change that and do less music is we typically, um, at both our 9 o'clock um, and 11.15, the 11.15 is the service where our adult choir sings every week, and the 9 o'clock is where our, our children's choir sings. But in both instances, for most of the year, we do a gospel procession down um, for the reading of the of the gospel. And on the way back, typically we'll have the organ will play for the return procession for the from the gospel. During Lent, we don't. And so just that little bit of the gospel returning back up, uh, is in silence. And even that is very noticeable as a difference during Lent. I do not love it. I feel yeah. very uncomfortable. I'm like, do I smile? Do I bow my head? Like, right. What's the posture here? Right yeah. now. And yeah. then we start every service with the Decalogue, which is, it is appropriate to, you know, for Lent and to be quiet and, yeah. you know, all that. But, I, you know, extroverted me is like, I don't know what to do. The absence, the absence of it is a little painful. And, and so it's very effective as a Lenten practice, I guess, from that sense, because something that's so fundamental to who we ourselves, our, understand ourselves to be as the church, when we take that away, I guess that's a form of fasting, right? Yes. Um, and I'm sure ready for Palm Sunday when we can see oh, yeah. all the glory, all the honor to come. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sing plenty of it while you march around the church. <laughs> That's right. Well, or, you know, I love to think about Palm Sunday as the bookend with uh, the first Sunday in Lent. I don't know if you all uh, do the, the litany, the great litany on, on Lent Sunday. Um, and we first do. Sunday. Yeah, and we, and we chant it. And so we'll process around chanting the great litany, which is always, I think there's always – uh, looking around and seeing people in the pews who who forgot what right. happened that day, and they oh they they uh, they sit up a little straighter and say oh here we go, and chanting those words is also pretty powerful because again it's slowing it down, it's it's heightening that speech both in the prayer and in the response that the congregation yeah. has to. Did you have this? Um Alan, at your ordination, at my ordination, we had a chanter for uh, someone chant. Um, the litany. The litany. And, oh, my gosh. Did you have that, Alan? Yeah, I did. And we, Mark, to your point, first Sunday in Lent, um, we did the Great Litany, chanted around, you know, all 15 minutes of it or whatever yeah, right. it is. And, yeah, you have those people who 
it's their first time. Or in mm-hmm. our case, we did two baptisms on the first Sunday in Lent. Oh, wow. And so, um, you know, much of my sermon was about the tension we feel between like, you know, the lows and highs of life, which you, you nail with the Psalms, but you've got people there who number one, maybe have never done the great litany mm-hmm. or forget. And they're like, you know, yeah, I, I got to stand for all this, but I think it's <laughs> perfect. And we, we've talked a little bit, you know, a couple of weeks ago in the lectionary was Psalm, Psalm 137, right? Yeah. So, yeah. dashing babies heads against the rocks. Mm-hmm. I had multiple people. Mary Balfour said she had multiple people ask why we didn't omit that from the Psalm. Like, but yeah, that's, that's above yeah. my pay grade. And we <laughs> can actually chant those prayers. That, we can right. chant that lament. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly. And, and I think it's helpful when we, and, and there are plenty of places that do, and you know, no judgment. I know there are plenty of, you know, English cathedrals that have daily even song that do the entire book of Psalms once a month, go through it. And, and we're kind of extract individual verses from some of these, you know, imprecatory, these cursing Psalms, they'll, they'll edit them out a little bit and no judgment. But when we leave those verses in, I think it can really help us remember that these are human words being offered to God. And if I can reference, um, dear Dr. Ellen Davis at Duke University again, that, that she reminds us that because these things that make us blush or worse when we come across them and we say, how could that be in the Bible? How can that be something we say in church? How can that be a prayer? We were, it, it reminds us that there is nothing that we have in our lives that we cannot take to God. There is no feeling that we, that we experience that we need to clean up before we present it to God, that we can bring our entire selves. And if we're really honest with ourselves, you know, we say, oh, my goodness, taking someone's babies and dashing their heads against a rock. What in the world? What kind of barbarism is this? But I think if we're very honest with ourselves, we can be that upset sometimes. We can be that angry. Even if we say, well, I'm not going to act on that emotion. Absolutely. But I, feel it. I I really want God to re, to enact vengeance on 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 these people, um, who who have done so much harm or hurt or whatever. And and it's also interesting that Psalm one thirty seven may be the exception. You know, happy is the one who takes these these things. Right. But right. so many of these other psalms that we can categorize as, as cursing psalms, they are saying, God, would you do this? We're taking those emotions and saying, God, it is your job to, you know, vengeance is mine. It comes back around to that, you know, it's self-referential for, for other parts of the Bible that we're saying, God, why don't you go with our armies anymore? It's not saying, God, make our armies the best armies. It's saying we need you there. God, why don't you punish the wicked? Um, and God has a response to that, I think. We, it may not be the response that we want to hear. It may not be the answer that we're looking for, but the fact that we are taking that to God, that is a great lesson that these Psalms can teach us that we're not saying, Hey, I'm going to take this into my own hands, but this is out of my hands. And I'm really, really steamed about it. And, and I will never forget. There was a moment um, back in the sometime in Advent when I was working on, um, 
some psalms with with my kids in choir, and we were working on you know we do a lot of Anglican chant with the kids. Um, we can talk about Anglican chant in a minute if we want to. We also do a lot of you know plain chant chanting of the psalms. But we're going through, and it was one of these psalms. I forget the service it was, but it was one of these just crazy lament cursing psalms. And and one of the you know one of the fifth graders raised their hand and said. Why are we singing? You know, what is this? This, this, how, what's going on with these words in this psalm? How can I connect to that? And I said, well, look, guys, you all are in school. You all are in a context where you've got highs and lows. You, you may, there may be bullies in your school. You may have experienced bullying yourself. Um, and, and, you know, someone who, a kid who's growing up, entering teenage years, dealing with all the stuff that kids have to deal with today. And I said to them, have you ever thought about all of that pain and all of that struggle and all that hardship that, that bless your hearts, you've got to deal with growing up? These are all things that the book of Psalms can speak to. And, and these are ways that you can, they're teaching us how to pray. These Psalms are, are, are a, they're a classroom for us and what prayer can and needs to look like. And so I said to the kids, look, if you're having a hard day at school or with your siblings or your parents or whatever the case may be, we're learning these psalms here together as a, as a choir in church. And you can take them with you out of church and keep them with you through the week. And I think for some of the kids, that just went right over their heads. But there were some other eyes around the room that I noticed that really lit up and kind of leaned in and said, oh, you know, I never thought about it that way. Um, and, um, and thinking back to my own childhood, I certainly grew up in a very biblically grounded household. Um, the Psalms were part of that, but it, it, it never dawned on me that that was something I could take and, and, and claim for my own until much later in life. Um, so I think that that's a gift that we can give to our congregations, to our, to our young people in our churches that you know what this book of Psalms, it is here for you to use as a guide. And even the parts that seem ugly, there are times in life when that may come in handy as a way of putting words to the feelings that otherwise we don't know what to do with those feelings. Mark, I can't believe it, but the time goes really fast. Um, but I think that is like the perfect way to end this in a lot of ways. And I'm really grateful for that is that the Psalms are a gift to yeah. you. Yeah, they yeah. are a gift. They're a gift to us. Yeah. Be used in so many different ways, right? Mm-hmm. In our own struggles in um, understanding and, and singing and praying to God. Um, and so I just love how you were able to bring all your gifts and talents of, um, of music and your love of the Bible and, and how you worked all that beautifully. And I learned a lot today. And well, I'm thanks. Cool. And if I can leave you with this, um, sure a challenge to, to, to everyone that next time you're in church, whether it's a spoken prayer or it's a hymn you're singing it, look at the little tiny words underneath the hymn. Um, because so many of our hymns that we sing are actually paraphrases of the Psalms and we don't even realize it. Um, and it's interesting to play a little game. How many hymns are actually built on around Psalm texts. And so they're just, they're, they're, they're in, they're in here. with us yeah they're everywhere psalms are everywhere so listeners hear that hear that that the psalms are everywhere and they're a gift for you 
And remember, as always, that we love you, but most importantly, God does.